0: the transfiguration. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. When Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. I will set up three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he, was spe- while he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. Jesus came up, touched them, and said, Get up, do not be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Don't tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So the disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah Elijah must come first? Elijah is coming and will restore everything, he replied. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they didn't recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him, in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that, they, that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks
1: be to God. Will y'all pray with me, and then we'll, we'll chop up this text. God, we, we are amazed by you when we read of the works of your hand, when we look at texts like this, we are amazed. And so God, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to be moved by the, the splendor, the truth behind the wonder. God, may I be made small so that you might be made big may the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We're in Transfiguration Sunday. We just, we're moving into, <clears throat> let me take that whole thing back for a second. If you've been coming for a while, you know that like we are pseudo-liturgical, <laughs> So what I mean by that is that we have a love for the liturgical calendar, um, but yet not uh, as strict an adherence to it as some of our more, uh, we'll say traditional brothers and sisters do. Um, And I talk about the church calendar actually uh, frequently because the church calendar was constructed in such a way as to teach people. You see, when, when people are poor and when people are um, uneducated or illiterate, as has been the case for much of human history, and is still the case in many places in the world, uh, you rely on other devices apart from self-learning to teach. And one of those is songs. Right. And so when you see songs that are mainly scripture, that's helping people who can't read memorize scripture. And when you come to the liturgical calendar and here's what's here's what's the irony of it is when you use the word liturgy, you automatically it seems like you're you're like, oh, this must be an intellectual type of Christianity. Right. But but the irony is that the liturgy was actually designed to help people who that was how they learned so they could remember the flow and the stories of the Scripture because the calendar was actually revolving around it. And so the the liturgical calendar, the calendar of the church, helps us to learn, helps us to remember, to think about stories and realities of Jesus that don't often dominate our thoughts and our minds. Case in point, when was the last time you were like, oh, let's, let's... Let's spend some time thinking about the, the transfiguration of Jesus, right? Like, when was the last time? And so here we are. It's Transfiguration Sunday, and we're actually going to spend the next three weeks talking about the transfiguration of Jesus, the story that Eleni just read. And as we start that, I want to ask you this. Like, what is the most amazing thing that you've ever seen, like ever? Right. Because so, I mean, really ever the most amazing thing you've ever seen. Right. And so for some of you, if you're like me, your mind's immediately going to go to sports things. But like, really, that's not the most amazing thing you've ever seen. Right. The shot or the catch or whatever, like even if it has a name, Roger Federer, Tiger. They're not the most amazing things you've ever seen. What's the most amazing thing that you've ever seen? For me it's actually just nature. Like it's it's places that I've been and looked out at nature. Right? I was in India um and we drove up this mountain in, in Kerala and we were at the top of the mountain and you looked out and you could see over Kerala and Tamil Nadu states in India. And just in that moment it was so vast and so perfect and so untouched. And so, like, that I felt tremendously small. And isn't that what happens? Like, when you see truly amazing things, right? There are some things that you see, and it's like, we all, everyone remembers where they were when that event occurred or when that happened. But then there are some things that you see, some things you look out at, some things you observe, and in that moment, something fundamentally happens to you inside, and you feel different. Right, it's like The Sandlot. Right, do you, do you know what I'm talking? When when Smalls talks about how like we we all uh, when when Benny busts the guts out of the baseball, right? And he's like, we we didn't know what to say, but we all knew that we would never be the same. And that's just busting the guts out of a baseball. But sometimes you see things and they just fundamentally change you because of how unbelievable, how unspeakably amazing they are. And I'm asking you, what's the most amazing thing you've seen? Because in light of this story, I'm guessing that it pales in comparison to what was witnessed on this day at this mountain. Transfiguration. Jesus ascends this mountain. The disciples are looking up at Him, right? (laughs) And it's not even... All of the disciples, it's that inner circle, Peter, James, and John, they're with him. He leads them up a high mountain by themselves. He transfigures in front of them. It says his face shone like the sun. His clothes became white, brilliant as light. And then two dead well one dead person and one person who was kind of carried away, two people who are not supposed to be there are there all of a sudden Elijah and Moses and somehow they are really recognizable right the, the disciples know this is Elijah and Moses because in, 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 um, <clears throat> because they say hey should we should we uh, should we maybe build a tent for Elijah and Moses too? Like that's their response, right? But this is what they're seeing is Elijah and Moses with Jesus in glory on this mountain. They're seeing it and, and they just know who they are. And, the, and, and Christ is just shining with all of his glory. Like that's Amazing. That's amazing to the point of unbelievable. Like, that's unbelievable. And so really quickly, I want to, like, take two seconds to talk about why it is believable, why we ought to believe it, and why believing it then thrusts us into this whole new understanding of life itself, right? So first, why is it believable? So first of all, what's happened is that now three people are together, James, Peter, and John. And they all witness the same event, right? So if it were just, say, Peter, Peter was the only one who went up. No Jesus, no James, no John, just Peter. And Peter runs down the mountain and says, y'all, I was up there and I saw Jesus and he was shining and like bright, and then Moses and Elijah appeared too, and they were at his side. What would you say to Peter if I said that? Like, if I was like, y'all, I went up to Capitol Hill, and nobody was there, and there was a brilliant light, and then Abraham Lincoln, and Martin Luther King Jr., and and Alexander Hamilton were there, and they were shiny, and they rapped from Lin-Manuel Miranda's P, like his Broadway work, right? And I came back and they'd be like, what would you say? What would your assumption be? Like you need to go quickly to the hospital and get an MRI, like get, figure out what's going on because either you have taken some form of a mushroom that is magical or you have a brain tumor or, or you just, halluc- like what's the thought? Is it a, it's a hallucinate, a, a, Take that back. A hallucination. That's the thought. Whatever you thought you saw, whatever happened, that did not happen. And we would be justified in that. If it was just me, Sean Cross, saying that I saw these things, right? M.O.K. 16 and Alexander Hamilton rapping to a modern Broadway song, you are right to say that that is not what you saw. You're right to ask a bunch of questions. Are you sure it wasn't, uh, you know, one of those Abraham Lincoln impersonators that roam about the city, right? Are you sure it didn't look like them? Like, those three guys look like them, but they're not really them, right? Or are you sure your, 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 your brain is working properly? And so we might tend to think this is a hallucination, In fact, of all of the reasons that we would not believe this story, hallucination is the most likely. I don't know what's... (laughs) Or massacre. Maybe it was massacre. Hallucination is the most likely. But see, there are reasons why we can with confidence say that what Peter, James, and John saw was not a hallucination. And the first is that Peter, James, and John all saw it and they all saw the same thing. And see, the things about hallucination is that it's caught up in your individual brain, like it's your own psyche. There are no cases, there are no known cases in, in all of sort of psychological history of shared hallucinations. Even when people all take, like, say, for this instance, the same drug, we all take the hit of the same drug, how it affects you and what hallucinations you see, right, whether you see purple elephants over here, you see smashing pumpkins over here, like, whatever it is that you see is unique to you and your psyche. And so for the same people to have the exact same vision means that this is not a hallucination that we're talking about. This is something else. And so then you could say, well, maybe they're lying. Maybe they all conspired to lie about this. And I just want to say to you that this story becomes one of the linchpins in the entire gospel community being formed. In other words, when the early church would have found themselves tempted to say, yeah, no, Jesus isn't Lord, or yeah, no, I'd rather not be crucified upside down, or I'd rather not be burned to death or fed to lions to die, Right? When those things happened, they would look back at stories particularly like this one. And it would corroborate what the disciples had told them, what the apostles had told them, that Jesus Christ is in fact Lord. And so three of these men, in fact, all of them, when you consider their lives, Peter, James, and John, John the Apostle, Zebedee's son, the one who wrote John, and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and what else? Revelation. Where did he write Revelation? In exile, on the island of Patmos, exiled from his family, from his, his wife and his children. He would die there. I have a wife and kids. There's no way that I'm going to make up a story and then hold so tightly to that story that I lose them. That's John. But look at Peter. Peter was crucified upside down. Wife and kids. There's a term for pain that we use, excruciating. That word means from the cross, pain from the cross. Crux is the root of that cross. From the cross, crucifixion is not an easy death. It is a terrible, violent death. And to be crucified upside down, means the very thing that prolongs your life in crucifixion, which is you're using the weight of your body to pull yourself up to be able to breathe, you don't have. So to be crucified upside down means there is nothing but suffering. And Peter can recant at any moment. Let me ask you this. And this is why we torture people, and not we, like we don't. (laughs) The church doesn't anymore, thankfully, right? We've made it past the (laughs) Christendom, right? We've made it past those days. But this is the idea of torture, is that people will only hold on to a lie for so much suffering and so much pain. In fact, the problem with torturing is that if you apply enough pain, people will lie and say what you want to hear in order to to be relieved from the pain. And so that means that in his suffering and in his torturing and in in his brutal, excruciating, literally death, Peter doesn't even, doesn't recant ever. He doesn't even say what needs to be heard in order to escape this. He was so sure of this that he left his wife and children early and was, was tormented until the point of his death. And so here's the thing, is the idea that these people lied? Like these are the most courageous liars in the history of the planet, if that's what happened. And so we come to this text then, and we say it wasn't a hallucination. That, that, that doesn't really work within how we understand hallucinations to work. And it wasn't, <clears throat> or a dream, right? Shared dreams, collective dreams don't happen, right? We, inception is fake, right? It wasn't a hallucination or a dream, and it wasn't a lie. They weren't crazy. They weren't lying. And so C.S. Lewis leaves us with this option. Th- they're telling the truth. So now think about this story. They're telling the truth. If they're telling the truth, and, and it's reasonable to believe that they are, and that after six days of preaching and teaching... And eating and predicting and telling people to do things like take up your cross. After six days, Jesus takes his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, leads them up the mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. This becomes, in my estimation, one of the most amazing things, if not the most amazing thing, that anybody has ever witnessed, Right? Nobody was an eyewitness to the resurrection. There were witnesses, eyewitnesses of the results of the resurrection, of the empty tomb and the resurrected Christ. But, but they saw in front of their eyes Christ transfigured in all of his glory. So this, I ask you, what's the most amazing thing you've seen? And, and it changes you. If that changed you, how much more ought this change us? Which is why instead of just celebrating it for one Sunday, we're going to spend the, the, the rest of today and the next two weeks talking about it. Because we have this story that, that, de, that demands to be unpacked. It demands to be explained. Right? And we always do these weird sorts of things with it. What does it mean? Why these two people? Right? Suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with Jesus And Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. I will set up three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And so the first question that I want us to walk through and work out is why Elijah and why Moses? Now, there's a simple answer, and there's a a little bit more complex theological answer that I think is really helpful. The simple answer is the one we're gonna take over the next two weeks. That Moses represents the fullness of the law. When Jesus talks about the first five books of the Bible, And when they did, they say, as Moses says, they attribute it to Moses. Genesis through Deuteronomy is attributed to Moses because it is about Moses. And through Moses, we receive the initial covenant, well, through Abraham, but we, we receive this initial covenant where blood is actually poured out. Through Moses, we get the law. Through Moses, Moses is called the greatest prophet that there ever was. Through Moses, we get this, deli- this foreshadowing of deliverance out of slavery and, and, and into the hope of the promise, right? Through Moses, there is this how do we live in the wilderness. This is Moses. He gives us the law. He is to date, in, in, in Jesus' time, the most important figure in Israelite history. Abraham is huge. David is huge but Moses is chief. And so there's Moses representing the law on one hand and Elijah representing the prophets on the other hand. Elijah, a prophet called by God. And so we see Jesus standing between them, fulfilling both them. This is the explanation that we get from Sufyan Stevens, too, right? In, in his song about the transfiguration, right? He says that Moses and Elijah appeared and were fulfilled in Christ. That Jesus satisfies both Moses and Elijah. And this is true. And what we're going to see over the next two weeks is that all of the scriptures find their culmination in Jesus Christ. He is at the center of the scriptures. But what I want us to see with the rest of the time that we have this week is that he is at the center of everything. Christ at the center. How do we get there? Why Moses and Elijah? Part of the reason why is found in the setting. Jesus goes to the top of a mountain. We don't know which mountain. We have sort of tradition about which it is and which mountain in some ways is irrelevant, except that it was a mountain and that it was hard work and they got up there and at this mountain, Peter, James, and John see Christ glorified. And in this mountain, where disciples of Jesus are now witnessing the glory of Jesus, two specific men appear conversing: Moses and Elijah, and what do we know about Moses and Elijah, both of their stories? Let's talk about Moses for a second. If you recall, Moses spoke to God on behalf of the people, he made him a priest. He was a priest. He interceded he talked to God but what else did Moses do with relation to God he went up the mountain Sinai later called Horeb and he converses with God I want to see you God what does God say if you saw me in the fullness of my glory you could not stand you could not live but I will give you a glimpse of the back and the tail side, just a glimpse of my glory, because you can't stand to see my face. And God passes before Moses. And what does the scripture say? That Moses looks, and when he comes down, the people are in awe, they're afraid, because Moses' face shone like the sun. The glory, of like he has like this Shekinah afterglow. He sees the tail end of the Shekinah glory of God. God passes before him on this mount, Mount Sinai, later called Mount Horeb, and he sees the glory of God there. And then we come to Elijah. And Elijah, in 1 Kings 19... Has just been chased by Ahab and Jezebel. And he's fleeing for his life. And he does the number one horror story, horror movie, no no. He flees up. Right? Everybody always goes up. We gotta let's let's go up to the attic. There's only one way down. What are you doing? Right? Like leave, go, open fields, run, crowded places, right? Trip people if you have to. But a lot don't. That's very <laughs> unchivalrous right but, but Elijah flees up a mountain of all mountains Mount Horeb Mount Sinai and the scriptures say that there God revealed himself to Elijah God said I will show you my glory and so there was a thun. you know this story right there's a thunder God Elijah looked and in the thunder there, God wasn't there and and an earthquake, God's not there. And then there's a quiet breeze that passes, just a whisper. It says that Elijah is filled with the glory of God. So both Moses and Elijah see the glory of God, something that no other two people are sad to have seen in that way until now. And they both see him on a mountain. And so I'm not implying that this is Mount Sinai. I'm not even implying that that necessarily would matter or make a difference. What we do see, though, is that this setting is recreated. And Moses, who spoke for God's people and who spoke for God, was a mediator for God to his people. And Elijah, who mediated God's word to his people, they meet him there. And all of a sudden, Jesus is conversing with them. Jesus, the word of God, made. Our ultimate and final mediation is there and he is revealed in glory and so what's interesting is that Elijah and Moses are standing in his glory and so there's Shekinah reflection right? But Jesus is the one with the glory. And what happens now is just like we said, Scripture is being unpacked even just a little bit more for us. And we realize what we'll later find out in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, which means that the essence that Moses saw and the essence that Elijah felt and experienced in that whisper was now ultimately given to us in Christ. And what is amazing is that Jesus does not go up there by himself. He brings disciples with him. And for the first time, for the first time in all of human history, everyone and anyone has access to the Shekinah, to the glory of God. Right? So now transfiguration becomes this this huge, this unbelievable moment where Jesus says, my glory you now may lay your eyes even upon. And Jesus is the central object of this. Jesus gets all the glory, and I love this. This is, so, so this is why. Why Moses and Elijah? Because we're supposed to see that Jesus is the fullness of the glory of God. He is God's glory in flesh. He's the radiance of his glory. And what's amazing is like, so how do we then respond to this? We see it here. I love this. I lo- First of all, how do you not love Peter. I know that gets said a lot, but how do you, right? So Peter is one of those dudes who can't let a moment be, right? Like you've ever just, something happens. It's amazing. Everybody is just sitting there, kind of like trying to process to themselves what they've just witnessed. And then there's that one. There's always the person (laughs) who has to break the silence. Like this is real. And this is Peter. Peter. So they see Jesus, glory, Moses, Elijah. Moses and Elijah. Maybe they had an E shirt and an M shirt, like the chipmunk, I don't know. But they know it's Moses and Elijah. Moses who died a long time ago, God buried himself, Elijah who chariots of fire, right? And 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 Jesus in shine, like glory. And Peter's like, So should we uh do you want us to pitch a couple of extra tents? Like how how's this gonna work? Should Should I run to the store and get more food or should he, like, he can't just let it be. Peter's trying to make things happen. And and while he was speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud, this is now mirroring that baptism, a voice from the cloud says exactly what was said at his baptism. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Here comes our first response to the glory of Jesus. It's to listen to Jesus. Hear the words that He says and heed them. Listen to Jesus. Christ is calling you. Christ is speaking to you. Now, wherever you are in your walk, that may look different. Wherever you are in your life, that may look different. But Christ is speaking truth to you. Christ is speaking promises to you. He is saying of those promises, they are yes and amen because of what I have done. So if you, were, if you sit in this room and you find yourself wrestling with, do I want to follow Jesus at all? Christ is actually speaking to you in this moment saying, Weary, burdened, wanderer, there is rest in me. He's saying, come, follow me. He's saying there is life to be had and life everlasting. He is speaking to you. And if you hear and you follow Jesus and you find yourself in a season of doubt and despair, Christ is speaking to you that there is hope and that it is finished. Christ is speaking to you. And if you're here and you're joyful, then Christ is speaking to you that all the joy that you may have found in X, Y, or Z and all the glory that X, Y, or Z may contain, however splendid or wondrous this thing is, it fails to compare to the reality of Shekinah glory. That word Shekinah is glory as belongs only to the Lord God. Shekinah is killer glory, like literally. If you see it and you're not right, it will kill you glory. Nothing compares. So Jesus is speaking to you through his spirit, through his word, but then I love this. I love this, I love this. When his disciples heard the word of God and saw the glory of Jesus, They fell face down and were terrified. This is actually, I think, the best definition of worship. (laughs) And what I love is that it's Peter, James, and John, his inner circle. I love that it's John. John is beloved by Jesus. John saw Jesus weep, and he recorded it. It's the easiest memory verse we've got, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept, right? John sees Jesus weep. John hears Jesus crack jokes, right? They're, they're, they're sophisticated and they're usually at the expense of the religious elite, but they're actually funny, right? John laughed with Jesus. John cried with Jesus. John saw Jesus suffer when Jesus was dying. Jesus didn't turn to his own brothers. He turned to John and said, Behold your mother. Care for my mom. John. And twice, here and in Revelation, John sees his friend Jesus in the fullness of his glory, and it is not casual. He falls down as though dead both times. Jesus is your friend. He is not casual. Jesus is not trite. Jesus is not t-shirt worthy or bumper sticker worthy. He is the God. Of, uh, we don't use bumper stickers anymore, right? Meme worthy. Jesus is the God of all gods and the Lord of all lords. And he is to be feared. He is to be viewed in awe and splendor and worship. And what is amazing is they are in awe and wonder and worship and also a different type of fear, horror and dread. Jesus is not to be dreaded because Jesus comes to them, touches them, it says, get up, don't be afraid. God is, Christ is, at the same time, dreadfully, wonderfully, awfully glorious. Other, and at the same time, gentle, loving, kind, and near. Wonder, friends, at the Lord Jesus, but do not be afraid. For he is good, he is kind, and he is at the center of all things. Both Moses and Elijah have always been speaking about him. And in fact, all of creation points to his glory. So family, let's worship him. We've got two more weeks. We're going to see how all of the law finds its... Fulfillment in Moses or in Jesus, which is freeing. We're gonna see how all the prophets find their fulfillment in Jesus, which is which gives us encouragement, it gives us boldness, it is emboldening. But for now, let us sit in the reality that our God, our Christ, is glorious. He's worth obeying, he is worth remembering, he is worth following. Let's pray.